Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. Uh, We're in our second summer podcast of the anonymous questions from my summer abnormal psychology class. And boy, are there a lot of them this time. So I'm going to do my best to get through these uh, as quick as I can, but this will probably be a long episode. Uh, For my students that are listening, I hope you enjoy this one. It seems from your comments that you enjoyed the last one, so it's still live. You can still get extra credit for listening to that. And for everyone else who's listening, I hope this Q&A is helpful to you. Um, There's a lot of stuff on here that uh, stumps me a little bit, and I may pause and go look stuff up. But I'll let you know if I do that. But for by and large, I'm answering these questions uh, live um, as I read them for the first time. So here's the first one. During my time on social media, I've happened to run into communities that uplift each other's eating disorders. For example, there have been a few pages on Twitter that follow me because I'm skinny and see it as inspiration, even though they're fine the way they are and label themselves as EDWT, which means eating disorder Twitter. One thing that I'd like to know about mental health is when people with anorexia post themselves and their body on social media and they receive compliments about it, is that encouraging their disorder? I feel like those without body dysmorphia know that they have a problem going on and they know that other people see it too, so wouldn't they be confused and even feel like the compliments are fake or would that create an instance for them to develop body dysmorphia? Well, this is a great question. Um, And there are these kind of, um, back in my day, they were pro-anorexia live journal (laughs) chats and stuff like that. Um, where people saw anorexia, uh, purported that anorexia was their lifestyle um, and were using kind of extreme means to lose weight. So that that strong restriction and then strong compensation for any kind of what they viewed as an overindulgence, which probably most people wouldn't view as an overindulgence. Um, But relevant to to this question, you know, social media is more accessible than it used to be back in my day. So... um, these things are a little more common. Um, and yes, people um, people who have a vulnerability for an eating disorder, the um, compliments about their weight loss or their body can reinforce that. Um, so for folks who do have an eating disorder, posting their thinness can, can reinforce that. And then what happens is most people start to see that they're losing a little too much weight, and so they stop complimenting their weight. <laughs> Um, And when that starts to happen, they feel like, oh, I must not have lost enough, and they start to lose more. So that's one way, there are many ways that this can develop. That's one way that something like this can develop. For folks who have the extreme body dysmorphia, they're generally hiding their body. You're right about that. Um, And so you probably won't see people with the most extreme body dysmorphia uh, have negative feelings about their body and who have lost a lot of weight. They generally aren't going to be posting on social media would be my prediction. Um, It's not something I've actually searched for, but... Uh, that would be my prediction. So people who are more in the underweight, pushing normal weight range are probably going to post more, even if they're using eating disorder style means to get there. Um, and then probably once it reaches more of an extreme that is it is evident on their body, they probably would post less. Um, unless they're in a community, especially a closed community, where posting those kind of pictures um uh, are only looked at by other people who have uh, an eating disorder, and so they're, you know, complementing their efforts uh, of weight loss. So they may be comfortable showing their bodies in that situation, but by and large, I would think that when people have a uh, more extreme physical manifestation of an eating disorder, um, then that would be, uh, um, they would be less likely to post their body. 
I mean, you know, clearly I'm kind of guessing here. I don't know of any studies that have looked at this, um, but it is a great question. Uh, so some, the take-home message is some of those communities can be dangerous and reinforce these kind of very unhealthy means of reaching uh, target weights and things like that. And I also agree with something else that, that, that this person's asking their question is that there's nothing wrong with people's bodies because they don't meet a certain ideal. Um, you know, there can be beauty at any size, shape, consistency, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think that our culture does a really poor job of embracing that um, because what is put in front of us in terms of ideals is generally not achievable by a large portion of the population. Um, and then the other challenge with that is now we have Photoshop. <laughs> and so um, what is Photoshopped is generally not reachable <laughs> by most of the population and clearly not by the person who's posting the pictures that they have to Photoshop. Um, I mean, you can see a lot of before and after stuff out there to really see the extremes that people uh, go to to kind of create this weird version of beauty that is just really not achievable by 99.9% of human beings. And certainly even that 0.1% not achievable on every single day <laughs> um, based on, you know, various factors of, you know, their skin and how much sun they have and how big of a meal they've had and all those other little things. So um, I spent a lot of time on my first question, but it's such a good one. It deserved a little bit more comment.
Next question. Would women born in Western cultures with eating disorders uh, lose their disorder if they move somewhere without the media's influence on looking perfect and skinny? Well, you know, the media is not the only thing that causes an eating disorder, so it really depends on a case-by-case basis. But if someone was really trying to meet a media ideal and that was their reason for developing disordered eating, then maybe moving to another culture would help. But the problem is that, you know, Western culture is pervasive across the globe, um, especially our movies and commercials and products and things like that tend to be around the world. So re- really escaping Western culture is is uh, very challenging, if not impossible. Next question. After listening to one of your lectures, it seems that you are not a fan of EMDR. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this type of treatment? Uh, that's very true. I am not a fan of EMDR. So EMDR is eye movement uh, desensitization. Um, and what it involves is this idea that you can treat trauma um, by using a visual stimulus in which the eyes move back and forth. And that stimulus can be very different. It, it, originally, it was just someone's finger wiggling back and forth. Now there are devices that do this. Um, and the idea was that because the optic chiasm, the major neurons, the big bundle of nerves that go from your eyes to the back of your brain where vision is processed in the occipital lobe, that having uh, this vision going through the middle of the brain, the amygdala is there. And that's that fear response place, right? And we know that's a big part of trauma. So the idea was that this eye movement would stimulate the amygdala and make exposure, which is the active ingredient in all effective trauma treatments, it would make the exposure work better. Well, it didn't, um, and there have been multiple studies to show this, that the eye movement piece is not helpful. It's not necessary. You get the same results with it or without it. Um, and so that's the reason that I don't think that it's a, a, a treatment, a good treatment to use. Um, you know, I'm an educator. I teach people to be therapists, so I don't teach anyone EMDR, and anyone that wants to learn it, I tell them don't bother. Um, people who already know it should keep using it. It does work. It involves exposure. Um, there's a negative piece of it where it says if the person gets too upset, you're supposed to stop the exposure, and that actually reinforces the fear cycle. So if you're exposed to your fear, and the, if fear, the thing you're afraid of in this case is the memory of the trauma, so you, you, you re-expose yourself to it by thinking about it, by going through the imagery, but you do that in a safe place where nothing negative and scary and bad happens. And that way your brain can reprogram itself a little bit so that it realizes when I have these memories, when I re-experience this, nothing bad is going to happen to me. Because what happens with trauma is it's such a powerful impact on the brain that the brain wants you to run away, hide, and get to safety whenever you even think or are reminded of the trauma. And so you've got to deprogram it. You know, and you can't think through it. You've got to do these weird exercises to do it. You've got to do these exposure exercises. So EMDR involves that, and that is still helpful. I don't like that they say to cut it off if it gets too bad because you, know, you should have ways of preventing it getting too bad. And if it does, there are ways to push through that and help the patient. Um, but that's a bit of a picky, picky thing. So it does work. Um, the other problem is most of the people I meet who do uh, EMDR are very, like, overstate its evidence. They want to use it for everything, and it's life-changing to even learn about it, and it's the most amazing treatment, and I do it myself, and I do it every day, and I use it on all my patients. Um, that's a little hyperbolic, but that is close to what I hear from people who have learned EMDR. So if you don't know how to treat trauma and you're a therapist, learn prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy. They're the ones that work the best. They have the best effects, even compared directly to EMDR. They do just as well, if not better, in different studies. 
So those are the ones to learn. If you already know EMDR and you're good at it, keep up with it. Go ahead, use it, but use it to treat trauma. Don't use it to treat everything. So that's why you got the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the impression that I don't like it. Um, and the, um, all the data I'm quoting to make that assertion um, is from the American Psychological Association study on trauma. Um, and you'll see all the evidence there for why EMDR is really a second tier therapy um, and other ones should be preferred to be learned. That being said, if there's only EMDR therapists around and you're experiencing trauma, they're going to help you. Maybe not as well as another uh, type of, uh, uh, of therapy, but it'll certainly help and I would highly recommend doing it um, if there aren't, aren't other good options around. It is better than a lot of therapies, but it's not better than the two best ones, which is cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. Next question, is synesthesia associated with hallucinations? If so, could synesthesia be a sign of having a mental illness? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, so synesthesia is when you have um, two sense senses that overlap each other. Um, so uh, the most famous one is the, you know, the man who tasted shapes. So this was someone who's basically your, your neurons get crossed. There's some kind of error in your wiring. Um, and you, um, so someone with synesthesia for, for um, in this particular case, this guy, um, when he heard, uh, saw certain shapes like a square, he had a sensation of a certain taste and there were different flavors associated with the different shapes. Um, it's not usually associated with necessarily having a mental illness or hallucinating. Um, it could be temporarily caused by a medication or some kind of temporary trauma, uh, like brain damage, brain injury or something like that. Um, so it could be a symptom of a lot of different things. Um, and is it necessarily a sign of having a mental illness? Um, I would still say if someone's experiencing this, they should probably see a neurologist, make sure nothing's wrong, get an MRI and that sort of thing. Next question. I have heard that students going to school for health sciences such as psychology or therapy and counseling are afraid to go to therapy or counseling themselves for fear it will reflect badly and potentially inhibit their career or affect their ability to get hired. Is this stigma accurate or simply unfounded by fear? I would say it's completely unfounded. Um, the old school approaches to psychotherapy, like psychodynamic psychotherapy and that sort of thing, used to require that students seek their own therapy. Um, the more modern versions really try to treat uh, problems that exist. Uh, so unless someone is experiencing a problem, then we're not necessarily saying they should go get therapy. So no, I, the, the, it's always good to go get therapy. The only time it might be negative is sometimes for people in the military, if they seek therapy uh, for ADHD, for example, um, then they can't, uh, I think the Marines don't like that. Uh, if someone has a history of ADHD, Army is fine with it. Marines aren't. Don't quote me on that. That's just from my memory. Um, so no, uh, that will not hurt your chances of being a psychologist. Now, when you apply to a psychology program, you don't want to say, I have a long history of depression and have so many problems and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, you know, you may not want to disclose um, your therapy in a letter, you know, in, in your initial, the thing where you're trying to give the initial impressions to the people reviewing your application. Um, but, you know, I personally know that many students that I've worked with have sought therapy, even when they were in grad school, just for the stresses of grad school and things like that. Um, and we don't look at that negatively at all. I think that's good problem solving on the part of most people. So, um, Ooh, this is a cool one. Good question. What do you personally believe is the worst, most harmful drug and why? Ooh, okay. So, um, 
you know, there are two sides to this. Like, which one is worse in it'll probably kill you? And then which one is worse in terms of um, most harmful to mental health? So I'm going to answer the latter question because I think to me, which one's the worst in terms of most deadly is going to be fentanyl. Uh, that kills a lot of people, kills a lot of people by accident. Um, really bad. It's like heroin on steroids. So very bad. That's the worst one. But the one I think is worst for um, mental health, I would probably say is uh, MDMA, ecstasy, molly, whatever the term people use for it. And the reason is, is because if you use too much of it, you won't, it won't necessarily kill you. The dehydration can kill you, but the it, 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 it tends to be, it works a lot on the serotonin, serotonin neurons, which we know is associated with most mental illnesses, <laughs> especially depression, uh, and to, to a degree anxiety, but especially depression. And remember, I'm a depression researcher, and that's my expertise when it comes to treatment. So, um, if you use too much of it, it can there's an excitotoxicity, and it doesn't take a whole lot to get there um, to where the neurons fire so much they end up dying. So you basically wear them out, and that might be super fun for a weekend, um, but then those neurons don't come back. Um, or at least they don't come back quickly if they do come back at all. Uh, and so that causes problems with mental health thereafter. So I would say it's that one, although you could make an argument for a bunch of them, but you know, my personal opinion, uh, I'd say ecstasy. Are there any connections between the severity of mental disorders and diet? Um, I'm going to say no. Uh, in terms of severity, no. Um, you know, there is some cool research coming out on gut microbiota and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's another thing where it's biology and it has a small influence on mental health, but it still has a, an influence on mental health. Um, so, but, but nothing about, but it's not a huge deal, um, I would say. It very interesting and could be potentially useful treatment-wise, but it's not the root cause or anything like that. Like, if we all change our diets, we're not all going to be happy. Um, but severity of mental disorders and diet, no, except in the extremes. If someone's malnourished, they're going to have cognitive issues that contribute to most mental health issues. Um, so I would say if people are malnourished or not getting the food, that the, the nutrients that they need, for example, um, but I mean that in a very minimal sense, like you don't get enough vitamin C, you can get scurvy and you know, you don't get enough vitamin D, there are problems, you know, the things like that. That's, that's, but that's like bare minimum. That's like eat a somewhat normal diet maybe take a multivitamin and that and, and you've reached the baseline of of where diet influences uh mental health so again i didn't go look up the literature to give that answer but that's that's my knowledge of it next question could a history of ocd lead to developing other disorders like schizophrenia uh no for schizophrenia schizophrenia is a separate process it's people have a a a uh, a risk for it and then usually there's some kind of stressor um, or a stressful period of of life excuse me that allows it to manifest um, so I would say no for schizophrenia um, but people who have who have a history of OCD may be at risk for developing other anxiety or uh, uh, for developing anxiety related disorders OCD isn't technically an anxiety disorder anymore that's why I paused there <laughs> even though there's a lot of anxiety involved in it um, so not for things like schizophrenia, yes, for things like, you know, maybe a panic disorder or depression or something like that, but that's kind of a broad vulnerability and it's probably not a very high probability that simply because they have a history of OCD that they would develop another disorder later. So I would say yes, but small risk and definitely not for things like schizophrenia. Next question. 
Can you healthily deal with CPTSD triggers outside of therapy treatment? Uh, why is it often misdiagnosed as BPD? Um, so I think CPTSD, they're referring to chronic uh, PTSD, uh, and BPD, I think, is um, borderline personality disorder. Um, you know, it's not that often misdiagnosed as borderline personality disorder, um, but it, it could be if someone has kind of erratic and emotionally driven behavior. Um, uh, maybe our book or one of the videos mentioned that it's often misdiagnosed, but lots of things are often misdiagnosed as borderline personality disorder um, because of the kind of high emotionality that you might see in some of these situations. Um, so is it, can you healthily deal with chronic PTSD triggers outside of therapy treatment? Um, it, when I see chronic PTSD, I think it's probably a more severe version of it. Uh, yes, you can deal with, with some of those triggers and the best way is through exposure but it certainly really helps to have a therapist guiding that. Um, so yeah, people can do stuff on their own and people spontaneously recover from PTSD due to a lot of their own efforts without any treatment whatsoever, except their own efforts. Um, but you know, if someone's struggling, I would highly recommend them seeing a therapist that knows how to do um, the right kind of treatment. Why is it when you get so close to someone, they eventually change and it seems like they aren't into you anymore? What is it that makes them change from when you first met them? Well, this sounds like relationship advice and unfortunately I'm not a marriage and family therapist <laughs> uh, and I'm not a, uh, 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 a psychologist who does this kind of work, although there are many psychologists out there that do. Um, but you know, I think that you know people change and that is normal for people to change and the normal course of a of a relationship is that you meet each other if you really like each other then you you know start dating or whatever and then that is kind of the most intense period and so there's going to be change um through that and who knows why humans become less interested in each other um you know i always commend marital therapists because when you bring two people into the same room the complexity doesn't doesn't double it like quintuples <laughs> like it gets so much more complicated because you have these two humans with their unique histories their unique lives their unique thoughts and they're interacting with each other and they've meshed their lives together but they're still unique humans and they have these long-standing patterns of interacting with each other these patterns from their previous experiences and and preferences about who they want to be with and what that's like and so it's hard to analyze why people like each other and then no longer like each other. But I would say that's a normal course of a relationship, that relationships do come and go. People get into them and out of them. And it's normal for two people to grow apart. And some of that could be factors of the person asking a question. Some of it could be factors of their partner. Some of it could be factors of the environment, that their life circumstances have changed and the two of them no longer really fit well together within those life circumstances. Or their individual life circumstances has changed and they no longer work together well anymore. And that's okay. I mean, it hurts and it sucks, but it's okay for that to happen. That's kind of the normal course of a relationship. We can't expect every relationship we're in to be a resounding success. It just, you can't predict that and you can't force that to happen when it's not happening. I hope that was somewhat useful of an answer for that person asking the question. 
Next question, why are therapists looked at as the easy job in medicine, as if it's not a real medical profession? Well, you know, part of that is that um, psychology and other um, groups tried to separate themselves from the medical field in a lot of ways because the medical field was always looking for medical solutions. So we didn't have the greatest place in there to be therapists. Um, and we wanted respect for our stuff being like the prime thing, right? Like behavior therapy, oops, sorry, that's my phone. Behavior therapy is the best treatment for various disorders and that's true. Um, and we wanted that respect and then we split ourselves off, which is just, so we got that respect, but only in our own little bubble. Um, and so that lack of integration with the medical profession, I think was problematic. Um, also, we don't tend to deal in life or death circumstances. So I think that's another reason why it's considered. I mean, I don't think a lot of people consider it. Most medical professionals don't consider it an easy job when they actually see us work. So when they come in and the patient is crying and, 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 and really upset and can barely get their words out and they're trying to figure out what's going on so they can treat their high blood pressure or whatever. Like, and then we come in and we can sort it through and get it out. Like they don't see us as the easy job anymore once they see us work basically. Um, and the other thing is we're not throwing a medical solution out there. We're not giving them drugs. We're not doing some kind of surgery. And so it looks like it's not real. Um, it's harder to, to grasp what exactly it is we're doing. And what we're doing is changing their life circumstances, changing their behavior, changing the way they think in ways that improve their overall quality of life. Now, I am also a health psychologist and health, H-E-A-L-T-H, -E psychology really works with this interface between psychology and medicine. And this is kind of, I would honestly say this is really the movement forward in our field. We're starting to integrate more. So you have a psychologist working alongside medicine folks. And those are the times when people really start to learn the value of psychologists, what we do, how we can help them get someone to adhere to their blood pressure medication, for example, or adhere to their weight loss regimen, um, or deal with their depression in the context of having, uh, get, having to get cancer treatment as well. So all, I mean, and a million other things that we can do that enhance medicine and provide mental health treatment that medical folks can't do um, in the same way. So, and it's easier for us to work alongside people because then it's not a big deal for me to figure out like, hey, what kind of, how often is this person supposed to take their medication? Because I don't think they even understand that. So they're not going to get it right. <laughs> and things along those lines, like uh, working alongside someone is so much better. And especially along psychiatrists is like, oh, hey, you know, so so-and-so is doing really well with me. Um, they're thinking about reducing their medication. How, you know, do you think it's time to help start to titrate it down? Or so-and-so started in PTSD treatment with me. They might feel a little bit worse before they start to feel better and I wanted to let you know so we don't end up increasing their medication when we don't necessarily need to. You know, working alongside the medical profession is wonderful. Um, and so this is this opinion is changing now with um, more and more health psychologists and more and more of that type of work. Next question. Do you believe it is possible to break the stigma that surrounds mental health in different cultures? Many cultures believe that prayers or meditation can solve the problem so they don't support the idea of talking to a therapist or seeking any sort of counseling. How can members of these cultures stop this from going on any longer to future generations? Well, um, I can say that um, a lot of cultures that do believe that prayers or meditation are kind of the best way, like the first line of defense for, for mental illness, um, they're not wrong because we do see a benefit of prayer. We see benefits of meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, um, but they don't necessarily cure disorders that are, you know, more severe. Um, and that by I mean more severe, I mean like meet a diagnosis um, 
of any level of severity, but have a diagnosis associated with them. That's where psychologists and other mental health care providers really come in. Um, so, you know, there's, there's not that there isn't some truth to those things being helpful, <laughs> um, but, you know, sometimes more is needed. And so I think that that is the key to helping folks in these cultures is to say that um, the mix is what may be necessary. So going to therapy doesn't mean that prayers or meditation failed. And it doesn't mean that it's not helpful because it certainly is. But it needs, the person may need both of those things for it to work. Um, so that's kind of the approach. And typically, once people in the culture either experience that themselves or know someone who has, then they start to change their opinion of it. Um, so for example, if I'm, a, if I'm a pastor and I feel like, you know, pastoral counseling and prayer is the best way to go and that's going to help everybody and they shouldn't go to therapy, then if I have a few practitioners come to me and say, you know, I went to therapy and it really helped. Like I, I kept praying and I kept, you know, coming to church and, and talking to God and doing all these things and, and, and I did therapy and that really helped me too. I needed all of that. Then that pastor may start to think, oh, hey, okay, maybe there's something to this. And they also notice that that didn't interfere with their, um, church going and their and their their faith right and so then in some ways that pastor may eventually start to recommend and then again this culture that that's one person in that culture changing and then other people change in response to that so that's one example um but i think that's the way to do it for people to get exposure and understanding to um what mental health care providers do and once they understand that, they tend to not have as big of a problem with it. But, you know, I've had patients tell me that. Um, I've been, you know, I'd, I'd come in, this was in the context of a medical clinic, and I came into the room and I'm talking, oh, yeah, it looks like you're having some problems and here's how therapy might help. And they're like, we don't do that. And this person was a member of a certain Native American tribe. And they're like, we don't do that. And I said, well, let me talk with you a little bit about what it would be. And then, you know, you can decide if you're interested because I can't force anyone into anything, right? Um, so I had to talk with this person and say, you know, tell me about what, what you think would happen um, and, and what might get in the way of it and, and that sort of thing. I don't know if that person ever sought therapy and I don't know if I helped. <laughs> um, but certainly that's understanding the truth of it and what it actually would look and feel like and that it doesn't conflict with um, standards people have in their culture um, is, is the key. Because if people feel like it's going to take them away from their culture or do something bad to them, uh, then... That's, that's, that's the problem. But it tends to, a good therapist can work with people of many different cultures because we take a stance of cultural humility where we have our own culture and that influences us and we recognize that other people have their cultures and that influences them. And sometimes we need to learn a little bit about each other to work well together and know about each other's preferences and we have to be flexible therapists. I may not be able to do the exact perfect ideal therapy with someone if they're not willing to do certain parts of it and that's okay. I can still make good progress with someone who's willing to work. So I'd say to keep this from going on to future generations, it's about kind of demystifying what therapy is, which is one of the things I try to do with these anonymous questions and with talking with people and doing you know talks and things like that. We need to do that. I think that's what'll what'll help. Um, and then you know there are going to be a few brave people who are going to be able to share. Yeah, I went to a therapist, and here's what I learned, and it worked great for me. Um, and then that'll open it up for other people who have been considering it to do the same. I was like, man, it's really good questions this round. I'm enjoying this. 
Next one, is it possible to prevent mental disorders like depression or anxiety? This is almost more of an opinion question because I know that there is no medicine to prevent these things from happening. Absolutely, there's no medicine to prevent these things from happening, but there is a decent amount of science on risk factors for depression and anxiety, especially behavioral risk factors. So I would say um, for anxiety, when it comes to things that you're afraid of or nervous about, embrace them, go and do them, push yourself a little bit, do it in small steps and small pieces, but try to learn to do those things and that'll help you. If you're worried about stuff, look to things that you can do um, that, that'll help you to prove to your brain that that worry is not valid. For depression, um, do things like try to build a life and, and a community around you that supports you living in the way you want to live, that supports you living in accordance with your values. So if there are things that are important to you, try to build a community and a life that allows you to embrace as many of those things as possible pretty consistently. Um, I think that's the way to do it. If you notice yourself starting to feel depressed, do things you care about, do things you enjoy, uh, even things that aren't fun, but also, but are important to you, like do those things and that'll help you feel better um, and help you move forward and help you to, you know, think better too. It helps us stay away from this kind of like self-deprecating catastrophic thinking. For both of these, there are, there are some things that I think are preventive for most mental illnesses. Um, they don't stop you from getting a mental illness, but they certain, certain or, or they don't stop you from having a mental health issue, be it a mental illness or not, diagnosable or not. Um, but they are important. And things like reasonable diet, you know, like I said before, meeting the bare minimum of reasonable <laughs> um, and exercise. Exercise is pretty much an excellent antidepressant and anti-anxiety behavior. Um, it changes our brains in very positive ways. Um, and you don't have to exercise like some kind of gym rat or anything wild like that. It's just like, go for a walk a lot, <laughs> go for a walk. Most days, <laughs> if you like running, do that. If you don't, don't, but go for a walk. Most days, get your body moving, get your blood flowing. Um, I think it's like 30 minutes a day, five days a week is the recommended, um, for, um, I mean, that's more for physical health, but I think that the, around the same levels will, will do well for mental health. There's probably research out there that shows, you know, close to what dose people need to see mental health improvements. I don't have that in my brain right now, but I would say going for a walk most days meets the criteria. You don't have to like have a, have a, uh, an orange theory membership and, and go like, you know, if you do great, but you don't have to do that and go like, you know, you know, five days a week for an hour and do hard workouts and then do, you know, cycling and high intensity interval training. Like that's all fine and well, but, and that's wonderful stuff to do. Um, but you don't need that to get the mental health benefits. It's about keeping your body moving and active. Um, you know, things like, uh, mindfulness, uh, practicing mindfulness can be helpful. Um, and things along those lines, I think those are kind of preventive. Um, but we each have our own preventive behaviors, you know, like when we feel down, when we feel anxious, when we end up being not productive and withdrawing from life and withdrawing from things and withdrawing from friends, there are things that help us get out of it and things that help us to keep us from getting there. And while I gave you some things that work for a lot of people, the combination of those things and the various other things that I didn't even mention that are specific to specific people, those are the things that we need to pay attention to. So, you know, use a little bit of science on yourself, you know, track what you do, track what you, how you live your life, reflect on it, write it down, journal a little bit. And then you can look back through and say, you know what, when I was doing this work, when I was reading more books, when I was playing more games with my friends, when I was doing that, I felt better. And then when I stopped doing that, 
and then this thing happened is when I started to feel bad. You know, stuff's going to happen to us all the time. So building up a buffer of goodness to combat the negative that brings us down um, can be helpful. It's still going to bring us down, but we have enough reserves that we can weather it until it's gone, hopefully. Um, you know, that's, that's a lesson for more acute issues, you know, chronic issues like unemployment, poverty, things like that have different rules, but, um, by and large to prevent mental illnesses, do some of those things that I mentioned, but figure out what works for you. You may need different things. Next question. What are some ways to help friends or family who struggle with mental health issues? Well, you probably know my first answer is try to get them connected with a mental health professional. <laughs> that is the best way to do it. Um, a mental health professional is going to be able to look at their life and help them understand the patterns of behavior and thinking that are leading to the problems that they're having and then find ways to interrupt those patterns and establish better ones. You as a family member can best help them by being supportive for the things that they're trying to change. So for someone who is, you know, trying to let, you know, I just use exercises as an example, so let me roll with that. Someone who's like feeling kind of down about themselves and wants to exercise more for various reasons, be it weight loss, fitness, mental health, whatever. You know, the thing to say is that the thing, the way to support them is to be like, cool, I'll go with you. When do you want to go? I'll come pick you up. Then they can't get out of it, right? Because they want to do it when they talk to you, but then, you know, three days later, they may not. So then it'll happen and that'll feel good to them. Plus they get to spend time with you, which hopefully is cool if you're not a jerk. Um, and so that's good too. So you're combining things that they like. Um, so that's a way to support someone, you know, to, to get in there and help them to achieve their goals. You know, the problem is sometimes supporting people can be bad for them. So if someone says, oh, I'm anxious and I just don't want to go, can you come pick me up? I'm, 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 at, I'm at school and I just can't walk back into class. I need someone to come pick me up. Supporting them can look like going to pick them up, right? That looks like being a good friend, you're doing what they asked. But in this case, what would help them the most is probably going back in there and finishing out the class and, and being able to do it and say, you know, I'll tell you what, I think you should get back in there and I'm rooting for you and I want you to go back in, finish it out. It doesn't have to be good. You can look anxious. Who cares? No one cares. No one's looking at you. Just go in, go do it. And then I'll tell you what, afterwards we'll meet up and we'll grab a cup of coffee, preferably decaf if the person's experiencing anxiety issues. Um, something like that could be helpful. Again, that's getting a little into like, you know, using therapy knowledge to help people and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of, you know, more for the realm of a therapist than holding someone hostage and stuff. But, um, but I think it is helpful to do those things with people to support them in what they tell you they want to get to, even if they're not telling you that in the moment. You know, if someone says, man, I really just like, I want to get out more, but I'm afraid to go talk to people. And it just makes me so nervous to go talk to other people. And I, but I want to do it more. And you say, cool, I'll help you do it more. And then you're going to go to a, a, a gathering together. And they're like, oh, I can't do it. I can't go anymore. That's when you encourage them to do it. Being supportive then is, is encouraging them to do what their goal was, not what they say they want to do in the moment because they're feeling acutely distressed and acutely upset. So I think that's some things to, that you can do in your life. The bigger thing, though, is get them in contact with someone who can help them make those changes. And then your therapist, the, your friend or family member's therapist will love you because you will be that supportive friend that helps them succeed. 
Next question. I asked this for the first one, and I'm not sure if you already answered anything about what relationship anxiety is and how to tell if you have it and get over it. Uh, I think I did talk about that one in the last one, so I'll give a brief answer. So relationship anxiety, it's like a special kind of flavor of social anxiety, not necessarily diagnosis social anxiety worthy, but you know, in, in that arena. Um, and that's where you know people feel anxious, uh, not so much around people normally, but when there's a relationship connotation, maybe it's someone they're interested in, or or you know they're going on a date or something like that, um, then they feel anxious about it. And when we feel anxiety, we want to avoid, we want to run away, we freeze up, we have physiological responses like we feel hot and, and sweaty, and and that you know we don't really want to look hot and sweaty and front of someone we're attracted to and want to date and stuff like that. So um, again, <laughs> just like with any kind of anxiety, um, you know, the response is exposure. So it's doing whatever you need to do to get out there, um, engage in those kind of um, romantic relationship type situations. Um, but, you know, a therapist may be able to help with this. Um, and one of the things that I would recommend uh, and, and what a therapist would probably do with someone who's experiencing this um, would be to talk about what are your goals for a relationship? What does it look like? And what are you afraid of in the relationship? So, you know, I say, you know, my general advice is just go do it. Um, but, you know, you want to have an idea of what you're after when you go there. Like, is this a casual thing that I'm looking for? Is this a one night stand I'm looking for? Is this a long term relationship I'm looking for? And how can I communicate that to the other person? Because a lot of times our anxiety comes around other people comes from them looking at us poorly and us not being able to, to tell them what we want and us not being able to communicate with them and hear what they're saying about what they want and us to be able to say what we're saying about what we want and then figure out if that works. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, then, you know, no big deal. That's why we date around a lot to find someone we want to spend a significant amount of time with. Um, so I would say the best way to get over it is to move forward with it and maybe pause a little bit and think about what it is you want relationships to look like. But, you know, in the more, you know, proximal, a little closer now, what do you want these romantic interactions to look like? Because that's the thing that people are, tend to be most afraid of in the moment. They tend to think about what they want their long-term marriage relationship, if, if marriage is on the table, but relationship to look like. But then what they're nervous about is like what's happening in that moment when they're in front of someone that they like. So thinking about what are those, what do I want those moments to look like? What do I want to be able to say? What do I want to communicate to this person? Um, and make it a little more about your needs and getting those needs met um, and finding out if that person can meet your needs. Because that really is the, the whole thing of it. It's not about like making someone like you. They're going to like you or not like you. It's just going to happen because you both have your own unique histories <laughs> that determine whether or not you're going to like each other. Um, so what you need to do is be able to figure out what yours are and tell them to the person, figure out what theirs are and get them to tell you and then see if that works. And again, if it doesn't, it's not your fault. It's not anything wrong with you. And I think that's a little bit of the assumption people can make when they're having relationship anxiety. Again, there's lots of assumptions that people can make. That's why it helps to talk it over with therapists and friends and things like that. Um, but, but yeah, so um, that would be, uh, be my advice there. There's a little bit of a theme on the relationship thing. This this round of questions, I'm enjoying that, even though I don't always have the best answers. When going over eating disorders, it makes me think about how this can heavily relate to the environment surrounding particular sports. If you grew up in a sport that was very body image conscious, is there a way to indicate whether or not that toxic culture of habits may have infiltrated that individual's daily life after they've stopped doing that sport? Great question. Hmm. So... 
generally, the general answer for is this thing a problem is does it cause any kind of impairment, discomfort, unhappiness, etc., for the person? Or does it impair their functioning? So the, can they not do the things that they want to do because of it? So that's what I would say. Does it, is this um, toxic culture hurting their body in a way that may be problematic? Um, is it making them feel certain ways about themselves that may be problematic? Um, and things along those lines. Um, and if you're not sure, um, then it might be worth talking to a therapist, getting a quick evaluation and trying to figure that out. Um, but by and large, I think the, the questions that one has to ask is, is this harming me? Um, so if, for example, um, you know, and this is true, for, I think for anyone playing most sports, um, especially because we tend to do it when we're younger, our bodies look different as we age, right? And those age-related changes don't necessarily meet a beauty ideal, but especially knowing that we did meet that beauty ideal and it was very much a focal point of our uh, life at the time when we were engaged in that sport um, can really um, provide that expectation for us. And so then we're not happy with our bodies later, even though our bodies are just fine. Um, that's something that someone can work through with a therapist and, and, and you know, get some of that self-love. There's, there's, there's a beauty at any size movement, a body positivity movement that might be worth kind of looking into and things like that, that may provide some inspiration um, for this sort of thing. You know, I keep saying, get a therapist, get a therapist, but you know, someone may, you know, read up on body positivity and be like, you know what, this is the truth, this is right. And I feel good about this. And I, you know, and then some of these kind of toxic habits may disappear. Um, but I would give that a try. And then of course, you know, my advice, yeah, talk to a therapist if you're trying to figure out if, if this is problematic. There's not a specific example here, so it's hard to, to get into the specifics of it, but I think that broad and general advice would apply to most sports. And I think what comes up to me when I read this is things like wrestling, um, ballet, uh, any kind of bodybuilding, of course, um, maybe swimming, maybe a few other things where, um, you know, the, the, the appearance of the body and, and some other things are, are, can lead to a culture that is not positive. All right, next question. Why do people often dwell in something mentally that they can't fix? Um, this is a good question. And I would say it's because our brains are kind of made to do that. And by say made, I mean evolved. You know, uh, our, our brains are really good at looking around and seeing a problem and then having us think it through. And that's how we develop tools. That's how we develop like so many things is that we think them through and we experiment and we think them through and that allows us to experiment in our brain to an extent instead of just experimenting out in the real world too. Um, so I would say that's why it's because our brains are really good at it. Um, and so sometimes our brains are really good at things that aren't good for us. Um, surely problem solving is something that is great for us to be able to do, but our brain is going to try to do that whether we can fix it or not. And so sometimes we need to use some of the higher order parts of our brain to instruct that lower, those lower order pieces to kind of say, yeah, this is a problem, but I can't do a thing about it. Um, so I'm going to use whatever strategies I can to move on. I'm going to distract myself by doing other things. I'm going to use mindfulness meditation to kind of clear my head. I'm going to, you know, whatever strategies that people use or develop or want to develop. Um, to kind of move away from that because everything your brain telling tells you is important is not necessarily important. All right, so uh, I had to pause there for a second. <laughs> uh, someone's given me a movie assignment um, and the assignment is the movie Old. 
um, from M. Night Shyamalan um, from 2021. And this person says, a small yet engaging movie assignment for you. I personally would love to hear your dissection of the entire film as it claims to present multiple characters depicting mental health diseases and disorders. The specific and more general question. Uh, the concept of this movie attempts to claim that residents are trapped on a secluded beach because they feared they couldn't escape, thus are unable to leave. Is this similar to agoraphobia in which they fear the situation and they are or would are, are would be in so much that they mentally will themselves to be stuck somewhere? Um, it, probably not agoraphobia. Um, that's, that's a little different. That's where people um, have a fear of not being able to um, escape somewhere so they feel feel safe in certain areas certain places and then going out into places that are crowded or empty it varies for everyone but you know crowded and full of people and that they can't escape from there and and see an, a, a safe exit without embarrassing themselves or being in danger um, then they they fear going to those places so they end up staying home in a very like tight space where they feel comfortable and safe so that's different from what I think this movie is about. And honestly, the reason I've never seen it is because I don't think M. Night Shyamalan has done anything worth mentioning since uh, uh, Unbreakable. So, And like the original Unbreakable, I didn't really like the rest of that. Sixth Sense was probably his best work, I think. And the rest is just kind of, to me, just kind of blah. Um, but that's probably a little bit of a controversial opinion. I also didn't enjoy his depiction in Split. I thought that was pretty garbage. Um, there are very poor representations of mental health in the media um, in general. I recently listened, listened to a podcast. So there's a podcast called Speaking of Psychology, and it's by the American Psychological Association. And there was an episode on dissociative identity disorder. Um, and the person there said there's like been no good depictions of dissociative identity disorder in the media, especially because there's no amnesia. Like look at Gollum. You know, Gollum, different alters, like, remembered what the other one was up to. So that's a really bad depiction. Um, and in Split, it was similar. Like, they're talking to each other, and there's planning and plotting, and that like that just, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. It was a neat, you know, gimmick for the movie, but it just wasn't. It's nowhere near what it really looks like. Not to say that was the goal of the movie, but it's just not. Um, I really liked in Ozark... Um, Ruth's brother, I can't remember his name, the depiction of him having bipolar disorder was actually pretty good. Um, you know, it wasn't on the nose like someone read the psychological uh, diagnostic criteria and then wrote a character based solely on that, <laughs> like ticking every box. Like it was a pretty decent depiction. Um, so I'd recommend that if you're looking for a decent media depiction of a mental health issue. Um, I'd love to check out Old. I might I might watch it just because I got the recommendation, but um, that's not something I've done. But anyway, that what I think is in this movie, based on the description, is different from agoraphobia. All right, second and last question: When should someone go to a therapist if they comma if they believe they are depressed? Uh, so if someone thinks they're depressed, they should go to a therapist whenever they're experiencing that suffering. That that that's that would be my recommendation. Um, you know, it's our job to figure out if you meet diagnostic criteria. It's our job to figure out that whether or not you meet criteria, um, what we can do to help you, and what kind of treatment might be best. So that's not your job. You don't have to worry about it. If you're feeling crappy, you can go see someone whenever you would feel like it. Um, none of us ever get upset because someone comes in without quote unquote real problems. If they're your problems and you say they're problems, they're real problems in my opinion. Um, but no one's going to be upset about that. You know, we want to help people. That's why we do our work. Um, and so uh, I would say it, the, the time is now, basically. <laughs> if someone's feeling down, they want to improve something in their life, that's the time to see a therapist. You know, 
the waiting lists are super long uh, across most of the country. Uh, and by super long, I mean like months, um, which is super unfortunate. There aren't enough of us out there. There aren't enough of us out there practicing because um, there are people like me who teach. I, don't, I only see a few patients at a time, and that's mostly by supervising my students. And, you know, they're the face-to-face -face person seeing the patient, and I'm supervising, you know, five or six of them seeing three or four patients each. Um, so, you know, that's a problem uh, everywhere, especially in our country. So, you know, there's no good or bad time. Uh, so if you're, you know, you don't, you don't know how you'll be feeling in a month when you can get into the clinic. Um, so I would say go. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, note our, our college counseling clinic is pretty overwhelmed, but we also have an online option that, that East Carolina university has bought into, which I think is a good idea. I don't know the quality of therapy on that online option. Um, but cause I don't know what therapists they're outsourcing it to basically, but I mean, it's gotta be better than nothing. It's gotta be helpful to some degree, um, or we wouldn't have uh, purchased into it. So, you know, even for, you know, if, if you're, not feeling like you have a, a deserving enough problem, that's not the case. If it's if, if you have a problem you want to work on, it's deserving enough. Um, and, you know, uh, especially something like that with that online option may be helpful. And I know this person isn't necessarily asking about them in particular. I'm speaking to listeners that may be experiencing uh, any sort of problem they want to, want to work on, especially depression. And that one is, is a challenge to work on. It's my favorite thing to work on, work on with someone. But uh, it, it takes some time to, to make some headway. It takes a month or so to get someone to where they're feeling like they're getting in an upward direction a lot of the time. Last question. Are there any proven activities for an individual to increase or repair severely damaged brain function? If so, what are these activities and which are the most effective? Ugh. Last question and I don't have a good answer. <laughs> That's really gonna depend. Um, most of the time, uh, engaging in stimulating activities are going to be helpful. And that's uh, about as specific as I can get because depending on what part of the brain is damaged, those activities may be very different. If someone has damage that causes them to have you know, a lack of coordination in their hand, then practicing with that hand can improve it. I don't know if it's going to repair the actual neurons or just make the brain compensate for what's been damaged. Um, but it will, those can be helpful. Probably won't regain 100% functioning maybe, but um, but it'll be helpful. So it's the same sort of thing with uh, any kind of mental activities and mental challenges that someone might have. Generally exercises and practice are what are going to help. And even if that doesn't regrow neurons, which more than likely it won't, depends on certain parts of the brain can, but more than likely it won't, um, it does help the brain compensate and use recruit other parts to do the same work. Um, so I would say practice. Uh, a neuropsychologist could answer that much better. They're the types of folks that can really identify where is the deficiency both physiologically based on what kind of problems people have and you know, um, psychologically, like do they have problems with working memory or do they have problems with you know, other types of memory? And you can clearly, I don't know all this stuff, but, <laughs> but that's what a neuropsychologist can do and do really well. And then they would be able to recommend things that may be helpful to the person to overcome any deficits due to, um, due to brain damage. 
Well, that was my last question. Uh, thanks so much to my class for putting these questions out there. And thanks so much for my listeners who should be, hopefully, a lot of my class, um, for listening in. Uh, I hope you... Uh, um, I hope that these answers were helpful and I hope that they continue to stimulate you to think about mental health, think about mental illness, think about therapy, uh, and ask more questions like this of myself and others who are willing to listen. 